started a series last week we've called Pray Like Jesus. We're, we're moving through the book of Luke, and we're looking at different times in the gospel of Luke that Luke records that Jesus um, prays. And today we're going to look at Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5. Interestingly, last week we didn't necessarily read the words that Jesus prayed, and uh, truth be told, this week we're not going to either, yet I think there's a, a valuable message that the Holy Spirit would have us to take from this passage in Luke chapter 5. If you hang around long enough for this series, we will get to actually hearing prayers that Jesus prays, but I think there's some foundational elements, and, and one of the foundational elements we need to look at today is, is what I would call the heart posture of Jesus's prayers, or in the notes we call it a pray like Jesus prayer posture. Luke chapter 5, I'm going to start reading in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now let me pause for a minute and say that three of the four gospel writers record this encounter with Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record it. Now what's interesting is that Matthew and Mark just mentioned that the man had leprosy. But Luke, we know, was a medical doctor. And so he gives us a little more detail that I, I think is helpful. He says that, that the man was, uh, in the NIV, covered with leprosy. Or maybe your translation has full of leprosy. But the picture is, this isn't a man who just has like some, you know, white fingertips or white earlobes because the, the skin disease is start, starting to take effect. This is a man who has had this defiling skin disease for a long time, and it's, um, it's running its course. He's terminal, we might say. Okay, so what we're going to read today is a man who knows that he has no other hope. He's going to die from leprosy. Chances are he already had lost parts of his body to this disease. He's desperate. Now, as we start talking about prayer today, let's understand the desperation in this passage. And I think there's a sense we can understand from the get-go that when we're desperate, when we know that we have no other hope, that's when something shifts in our prayer life. I sometimes wonder if God doesn't allow us to get to those desperate places because he wants us to remember that it's not by might, not by power, but by his word. That prayer, a real connection with the Father, is our only real hope. Whatever the case, this man was covered with leprosy and he was desperate. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And, and, and in the English, it's like five words, I am willing, be clean. In the Greek, it's two words. Jesus demonstrates his power in a magnificent way. He says, fellow, katharizo, I am willing, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but Go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about Jesus spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus 
often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. So we're doing this series called Pray Like Jesus. And if you're, uh, if, if you're paying attention, you may be asking, so pastor, why would you select this passage? I mean, Luke talks about prayer like over 25 times in his gospel. Why would you choose a passage where the only thing it says about Jesus praying is that he often withdrew to lonely places and prayed? Why this passage? It really doesn't tell us much about Jesus praying. But here's what I'd like to suggest. And I'm going to show this to you at the outset here. I think if we'll pay attention to the text, we'll find that it's often winking at us, saying there's more here than meets the eye. There's things going on that if you just read and move on, you're going to miss. And one of the things I want to suggest that Luke has done for us here is he set up bookends at the, end, at the beginning and end of this passage, verse 12 and verse 16. And in those bookends, Luke draws an interesting comparison for us between the leper and Jesus. And let me show you what I mean about the comparison that Luke drew. First of all, when he talks about the leper, uh, we, we get the sense, if we're aware of what's happening in the culture, that the leper was expected to, to, to stay at a distance. But he did the opposite. Now, perhaps you've heard this before, but maybe this is your first time. So let me show you. We're going to put it on the screen. These are verses from Leviticus where God first laid down how things are supposed to work for the Jews. And, and, uh, and here's what it says. Anyone with such a defiling disease must wear torn clothes. By the way, we're talking about skin diseases. We kind of came in on the middle of the conversation. A range of skin diseases, but leprosy included. Let their hair be unkempt. Cover the lower parts of their faith and cry out. What are they to cry out together? Yeah, I don't know that that was crying out, but we'll, we'll keep moving. As long as they have the disease, they must live alone and they must live outside the town. So the religious and ceremonial and, and civic law that governs these people, the Jews, requires that a man who is full of or covered with leprosy to stay outside the town. He is not to go into town. He's not to be near people because as far as they know, it's contagious. They, they don't have any way to prevent the transmission of this skin disease. But notice how Luke starts this account. What does it say right at the beginning of verse 12? While Jesus was in one of the towns. The man's supposed to stay outside the town. Jesus is inside the town. So the man says, I'm going in. I'm doing the opposite of what I'm supposed to do. Now jump down with, you, with me to verse 16, if you will. Uh, we're not actually going to read it. You, you may have it committed to memory already, but Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I would suggest to you, if you especially if you consider verse 15, that Jesus was expected to play to the crowd, but he too did the opposite. Okay, now think about this for a minute. If you can imagine this, pretend that you're Jesus's manager. Okay, you're his road manager. So here in verse 15, uh, you've, by the time you, you, we get to verse 15, you have just watched Jesus with two words heal a man who was terminal with a skin disease. And he did it by touching him and speaking two words over him. And you know as Jesus' manager, there's a lot more where that power came from. There's a whole lot more people that could be healed. There's a whole lot more people that could be brought over to following Jesus Christ. 
And you as his manager see what's happening. And Luke describes it in verse 15 that people were coming from all over the place to hear him teach and to be healed. And so you know that even if the healing power runs out, this guy can draw a crowd. People want to hear him speak. They want to hear him teach. They want to hear him preach. And so if if you're his manager, what are you going to do at this point if Jesus is like, you know what, I just need to get away. I'll tell you what you're going to do. You're going to go to a few of the disciples, maybe eight of them, and you're going to say, I want you guys to go to the local Walmart, buy every Rockstar, Red Bull, Five Hour Energy, Mountain Dew, anything. Buy all the caffeine that you can and bring it back. We are going to keep this guy healing people. We're not going to, there's no getting tired and, and pulling away. You would have the Son of God, so I would too, so hopped up on caffeine that he'd be a 24-7 healing machine. Am I wrong about that? Maybe it's a little extreme, but you get the sense. When you draw a crowd, you don't walk away from them. You do what the crowd wants so they'll stay. And, and, and I'm sad to say that I believe that is human nature. About a year ago, I shared with a, a, a ministry mentor, advisor of mine that I felt the Lord was uh, prompting me, encouraging me that we needed, that I needed to start a Wednesday night prayer group. And I was sharing this with, uh, with my uh, advisor and, and he kind of looks at me and he cocked his head and he said, didn't you guys just finish up a Wednesday night teaching series on prayer? I said, I don't think, I I I think you misunderstood me. Maybe I didn't say it right. Uh, My goal isn't to start a class that will do a teaching on prayer. My goal is to start a group that will pray. And when he got it, he went, oh no, you don't want to do that. I was like, what do you mean? We're a church. What do you mean we don't want to do that? He said, no, 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 no. People want to hear good teaching. They'll come to hear good teaching. But if all you're doing is praying, people aren't going to show up. Now, the hard part of that story isn't that a ministry advisor said that to me. It's that most of us, most of us if we're to be honest, we know that he's right. We expect to draw a crowd. And to draw a crowd, you've got to do what the crowd wants. You've got to get the crowd, give the crowd what they're looking for. But notice again, verse 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. You see, Jesus knew if he gave the crowd what they wanted, he couldn't give them what they needed. And in order to give the crowd what they needed, he had to withdraw. He had to get away. He had to spend time with his father. Uh, One more comparison. Uh, Both of the men did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And, And also I would say that the leper knew that his only hope of healing was to do what was ever necessary to get in front of Jesus. The leper knew that his only hope of dodging this death bullet from leprosy is if he could get in front of Jesus. And let's face it, he was right. I mean, this guy was so far progressed, full or covered in leprosy, Luke says, that if he did what the law required, if he stayed on the uh, outside of town, or if he decided to go into town and didn't yell, unclean, unclean, if he did that, he knew there was no chance he'd ever get close to Jesus. 
He knew that Jesus was his only hope. And they'd have to do some things that he wasn't supposed to do to get in front of him. And I would suggest that Jesus too knew that his only hope of healing was for him to do whatever was necessary to get in front of his father. Jesus knew that if he had any hope of healing anyone, it was only to the extent that he could get in front of his father and spend time with him. Now again, the text has always given us clues. So what I want you to do is look at verse 17. We didn't read that, but look at the last part of verse 17. Luke writes this, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Luke is telling us that one of the reasons that Jesus was able to continue healing sick people was because he was often withdrawing to lonely places and praying. Because he did what he wasn't supposed to do because he knew what was most important. He knew that his only hope of doing the ministry God had called him to do was to spend time with his father. So Luke creates this interesting bookend. This is what the leper did. This is what Jesus did. They did the same thing. I think I just said leopard. Did I just say leopard? Somebody count that for me. I have a hunch it won't be the last time. The leper and Jesus both did the opposite of what they were supposed to do. And I think in creating these bookends for us, Luke gives us a hint that the prayer posture we see in this leper is the same way that Jesus approached his father in these times when he often withdrew to lonely places and pray. So I want to talk about the three, the three postures that we see in this text that the leper takes as he comes to Jesus, that we can assume that Jesus takes when he comes to the father and that we would do well to take as we pray. So let's start with the first one. Um, the man approached in worship. Approach in worship. Again, notice verse 12. It starts out, or it, it continues. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground. Now, I already mentioned that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, and they all record um, the, the same basic idea here. Matthew says that the man bowed down. Mark says that he fell on his knees before Jesus. And Luke says that he fell with his face to the ground. Now, all three postures, bowing down on your knees and on your face, all of those are Old Testament worship postures. They're all Luke saying, this man, when he approached Jesus, he approached in an attitude of worship. Luke paints for us the desperation that the man is feeling. As a matter of fact, the, the wording that, you, that Luke uses here reminds us of a story from the life of Moses. And in Numbers 20, you may remember this story. Uh, Moses has now been leading the people. He led them out of Egypt. He's now leading them through the wilderness or the desert. And they are thirsty. I mean, you can imagine, right? But there's no water to be found. And so the people start to grumble and complain. And we might say revolt against Moses and his leadership. And, and the scripture says in Numbers 20 that Moses and Aaron knew that there was no way they could get water for the people. They knew that they only had one hope. And so what did they do? What did they do? They went to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell face down. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. Now, if I don't miss my guess, when I say the word worship, most of us don't think about falling flat on our face before God in desperation. 
And that is the way that Scripture describes what happened here. This was a time of worship, but it was a time of desperate worship. The man knew that his only hope was Jesus, and so he worshiped. Now, I want you to look back in the text in Luke 5, and I want you to notice what we don't encounter there. There's no praise band. There's no choir. There's no piano. There's no organ. There's no keyboards. There's no drums. There's no guitar. There's no, uh, there's no one leading music. There's just one man who is desperate to get before the Lord and to worship him. You know, if I'm to be honest, some of the most meaningful times that I've experienced worshiping God aren't when everything was perfect. I've had some great times of worshiping, uh, you know, with, with, a, with a great band or with a, with a piano and an organ or, or whatever. But if I'm to be honest, my most meaningful times of worship are when I was most desperate when I was most aware of my desperate need for the Lord. There are the Sundays when I, uh, we leave the house as a Smith family and I'm yelling at the kids and I'm yelling at them the whole way here because whatever, I am. There, there are the Sundays when I, uh, when I stand in worship and I, and I look back over the week and I realize how much I struggled and failed with my, uh, with my pet sins and these sinful tendencies I have. They're the times when things looked bleak and hopeless. And I knew that I needed God now more than ever. You know what? In times like that, when the desperation is thick and we realize that Jesus is our only hope, I would hazard a guess that we could play Mary had a little lamb in here and we would all worship intensely because we would know that that little lamb was our only hope and that's what we needed. Wasn't a specific external condition, but a heart condition that says, I'm desperate. I know that my only hope is God. When we're truly desperate to encounter God, we will worship regardless of what's going on outside, regardless of what's happening around us. So as we think about our own prayer life, let's ask this question. Am I so desperate to encounter God that I let nothing stand in my way of worshiping him? Am I so desperate to encounter God that I let nothing stand in my way of worshiping him? We saw this already. That's what Jesus did. He said, I know there's a crowd. I know they want my attention. They want me to teach more. They want me to heal more, but I've got to get away. I've got to have some time with my heavenly father. This is what the leper did. He said, I know that I'm not supposed to come in the town. And I know that if I do, I'm supposed to cry out unclean, unclean. But if I do that, I have no hope. I need to be healed. What is it for you that tends to stand in the way of a heartfelt, honest worship of God. You probably don't have to think long. We all probably have our list of things that interfere with our worship, that keep us from worshiping, that, uh, that, that don't allow us to uh, approach God the way that we want to. Uh, let me tell you, friends, you may not be able to control the external conditions. You may get up in the morning and the kids are already up and it's not quiet and it's going to be difficult to find some time alone with the Lord to pray. 
You may find that the music playing isn't the music that you would prefer. You, you, you may say, well, it wasn't supposed to rain today and I was going to spend some time with God in nature because that's where I connect best with God is in nature. And, and you can't now because it's raining and it's cold. You can't control what happens out here. But a heart that is desperate to worship God will worship. It's not the external conditions that matter most in our worship. It's the internal conditions. What's happening in here? When your heart is desperate to worship God, you will find a way to worship him regardless of what's going on on the outside. So praying like Jesus begins with approaching and worship. And secondly, I would say it's driven by a want. It's driven by a want. Again, we're continuing in verse 12. Uh, Jesus, uh, the man, the leper fell down on his face before Jesus. And Luke writes, he begged him. He begged him. Luke uses an interesting word here. It's, it's used mostly by Luke and Paul in the New Testament, which makes sense because Luke traveled with Paul and did a lot of the writing for Paul. Um, but notice how it's used elsewhere. I'm, we're going to stick in 2 Corinthians 5. We implore you on Christ's behalf. The, the word in yellow is the, the same word that Luke uh, uses here. We implore you on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. Or 2 Corinthians 8, they urgently, what's the word? They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Or, or 2 Corinthians 10, say it loud this time. I, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be bold towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. This is a strong word that Luke uses to describe what the leper did. He fell on his face before Jesus and he begged, he pleaded that Jesus would do something. And I wonder, when was the last time I was so desperate in prayer? When was the last time we were so desperate that we begged God to do something? That we pleaded with him to move on our behalf? When did we last implore God that we have a need and it needs to be, it needs to be met? You know, interestingly, Jesus talks a lot about this when he teaches about prayer. He tells the parable of the, uh, um, <laughs> the relentless widow is, is what I call it. The, the story is that there was a widow in a town. There was some injustice done to her and she needed to have justice. The only hope was a, was a judge in the town who Jesus says was an unjust judge. He didn't care about God and his law. And, and the woman went and she didn't get justice. And so she went over and over and over again, begging the judge to do the right thing, begging the judge to, make, to, to cast the right judgment, to make make the right call. And at the end of Jesus' parable, he says, eventually the unjust judge did what was right just because he was tired of the woman. Because he saw that she was passionate about pleading her case. And so he did the right thing. Jesus tells another parable uh, uh, of the, the, the middle of the night neighbor. And, and as Jesus tells this, it's like you put yourself in the story. Imagine it's the middle of the night and you get a text message or a phone call and you realize that you've got important company showing up early the next morning. And after you get this message, you start to go, oh my goodness, there's nothing in this house to eat. I got to feed these people breakfast. And Walmart's closed down. And Meyer is too, and so there's nowhere to go for food. And so what do you do? You go to your neighbor and you knock on the door. It's 2 a.m. and you're like, give me some food. I need just a dozen eggs will be fine. That's all I need. I can make a killer omelet with a dozen eggs and my company will be fed. Just give me some, just give me some food. And your neighbor, who you have a good relationship with, you're a friend, he's like, I'm already in bed. Don't you know what time it is? Go away. 
But that ain't working for you. You got important company coming. So you continue to bang on his door. I need food, just a dozen eggs. Remember a month ago when I gave you eggs? Well, it's your turn. I need a dozen eggs. Give me a dozen eggs. And here's what Jesus says. He says, not because of his friendship, even though even though he will not get up and give you the, the, the bread, I said eggs, but you know, because of friendship, yet because of your shameless audacity, he will surely get up and give you as much as you need. So here's the question for my prayer, for your prayer. When was the last time I so desperately needed God to do something that I was shamelessly audacious in my prayers? When did I last ask God to do something that was ridiculous, flat out crazy, and it was only going to happen if God did it? I mean, I'll admit, I struggle with this. I may not be the most rational guy in the group, but, but too many times my rational side starts to kick in, for example. Uh, this last Wednesday night. Uh, there is a group that meets for prayer. And so we were gathered around the conference room table and we were praying. And the way we do it is we just, we just open it up. And if you feel like the Holy Spirit nudges you to pray out loud, you pray out loud. If he doesn't, no big deal. Um, you know, but just do that as often as he nudges you and we'll be good. So at one point I felt like the Holy Spirit nudged me specifically to pray out loud for a neighborhood in our community that we as a church would have the opportunity to share the gospel with every household in that neighborhood. And I got to tell you, when I, when I thought that's what I was hearing, there was like another voice that kicked in and said, don't you dare say that out loud. I mean, that's ridiculous. Right, like we can share the gospel with every house in the neighborhood. Or what if someone else around the table would, would choose a different neighborhood? Or, I mean, just come on. That's just, what if God can't do that? I mean, that's a shamelessly audacious prayer, right? God, give us, a congregation, uh, the chance to share the gospel with every home in a neighborhood. And I didn't pray it. I did pray aloud. I thought, here's what I'll do. I'll, I'll pray something that sounds as good or, you know, less ridiculous. And so I prayed, Lord, please break our heart for the lost. Please open our eyes to the people around us who need to know you. And, and please move in us in such a way that we're so consumed with the lost that, that like Jeremiah said, it burns in our bones. And, and we just have to do something about it. I prayed something to that effect, which I, I, it's a pretty good prayer. But it wasn't. You see, Thursday as I came to uh, finish the message and, and um, as the Spirit would have it, I was on this part of the message. The Spirit started to convict me. When I ask you to pray something big, pray something big. Don't worry about if God can do it. Don't worry about what other people are going to think. Be shamelessly audacious and your Father will answer your requests according to His glory. Am I praying for big things that only God can do? We have so many little things because that's what we pray for. I'm tired of little gods. I'm tired of little results. I need to pray shamelessly audacious, and maybe you do too. Let's look at the third part of the posture here. Dominated by God's will. Verse 12, the, the, it continues, the leper says to Jesus, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. 
Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. He expresses two requests to God. The first one is, uh, Jesus, you can make me clean. I want to be clean and you can do it. This is, a, this is the need that drives him. This is the desperation. I sometimes wonder, do we believe that God can do the things that we're desperate for? Obviously, I don't always. I think that's what limits what God does among us is, is not his power, but our belief and willingness to ask. But I want to focus on the first request he makes or the first thing that he says. He says, if you are willing. I don't, know, I don't know how you read that. I don't know how you read that if. It can sound like he doesn't believe that Jesus can do it. Like, if, if, I mean, if you're willing. I don't know if you're willing or not. But I would say more than a question, it's a statement of submission. The man is saying to Jesus, look, I know you can heal me. I just don't know if it's part of your will for me. I know you can, but I don't know if this is your will and my desire is to submit to your will. And why would I say that's what the man is saying here? The first word of his request. What was the first word of his request? Lord. You see, this leper came to Jesus with his mind made up about who was in charge. Jesus wasn't a miracle man that could give him something he wanted. Jesus couldn't be manipulated or controlled or told what to do. Jesus was Lord. He was calling the shots in this man's life. And this man came to Jesus acknowledging and knowing that Jesus was in control. His heart posture was submission to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And I wonder, is that our heart, heart posture when we pray? Am I praying from a position of submission to Jesus' lordship? Do I come praying, God, this is what I want and this is what I think I need. So when are you going to do it? When are you going to answer me? Or do I come praying, Lord, this is what I need. This is what I, I, this is what I think I want. This is what I think would be best. I know you can do that. Lord, if you're willing, would you? It's the lordship of Jesus Christ in and above everything else that helps us to know if we have the right posture when we're praying. Am I committed and submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? It was difficult what this man did. He was totally at Jesus' mercy. Absolutely 100% at Jesus' mercy. He wasn't there to manipulate him. He wasn't there to convince him. He recognized that Jesus had a higher position of authority and he made no demands. He only cried out for mercy. And that's a ton of trust. He, he had to trust that Jesus would want the best for him. He had to trust that Jesus would do the best for him. But most importantly, he had to trust that whatever Jesus did would be the best for him. But that was okay because Jesus was Lord and he was not. And so I, I wonder, is, is this what's holding us back from pay, praying in a posture that says, you are Lord, whatever you want is trust. 
do we believe that we can trust the mercy of God? That we can trust his goodness? That we can trust his desire and plans for us? And that's hard. But you know what? We serve a God who knows that it's hard. He understands our, our, our human condition. He knows that we too quickly forget. And so he gives us all kinds of tactile, visual reminders so that we can feel and smell and taste that God is good and that he's merciful and that it's his kindness and his mercy that are his tools to change us and grow us, not his wrath and his judgment.